1: Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. October is Black History Month, and so today we're going to be discussing this year's Windrush scandal and what it meant for the way we talk about immigration and citizenship, how Trump has emboldened racism, and whether a people's vote would really lead to a resurgence in the far right. I'm Progress Deputy Editor Conor Pope, and I'll be discussing that with my colleague Henna Shah and our guest today, Tottenham MP David Lammy. When the Windrush scandal broke into the public consciousness earlier this year, exposing that people have been illegally detained, denied legal rights, and in some cases wrongly deported, one of the loudest voices in politics was David Lammy. It's now over six months since this scandal came to light. David, do you get the feeling that the government has changed tack on this at all? I get the feeling that um, the new Home Secretary is a kind of
0: smooth operator who's not bad at throwing balm over a problem. Um, And in some ways... um, is of a different era, an era of spin (laughs) (laughs) Um, and calm. But has things substantially changed is the fundamental question. And the answer to that has got to be no. We still don't have a compensation scheme. There's a suggestion that the Home Office are trying to cap the compensation scheme and also deny the entitlement of the children of the Windrush generation. So Mm -hmm. if your dad was trapped in Jamaica you may well have suffered as a consequence. And there was a meeting last week where the Home Office called together members of parliament's researchers uh, to discuss the changes they're trying to make. It was a shambles. Caroline Noakes, the immigration minister did not turn up. It was meant, it was billed for an hour and a half. They only held it for half an hour. They didn't really get into the questions. They say they're changing, but there's no transparency in relation to the change. And I can tell you from my case bag, they're still losing documents. There are still people communicating with the task force and not hearing back. There are still people in real hardship with real problems. They still deny you access because they say your problem's complex, because they say you didn't come in the
1: right year. People basically are still being treated horrendously by the state. I get the feeling from talking to MPs that if anyone really thinks that we have some kind of open-door immigration policy in this country, they should just spend a week <laughs> working in an MP's <laughs> constituency office because it feels like you know most of the, the letters that you get seem to be about trying to navigate through the, the immigration the,
0: system in this the, country. The vast majority of the public who hark from this country, their only contact with this public service is when they apply for a passport. And believe me, there is a hue and a cry if the passport office take more than six weeks to get <laughs> yeah, a yeah, passport, yeah, particularly if it's heading up to the summer holidays, right? Yeah. But for this other group of people who are in this orphanate category of indefinite leave to remain, haven't quite got passports, but reliant on applying every year or so to renew their right to stay here. Huge fees. The bureaucracy that you're under, the draconian regime, the ability to be detained at any moment and end up at Nyarl's Wood, the way that your life is absolutely at the mercy of this department. And it's not the most efficient or the best department. It's another world. And I think Windrush was, was literally the opening of that. But I would say that, that 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 context exists actually for lots of different communities, way beyond Windrush. The Home Office is is such a poor department. I mean, it's just really, really poor. And frankly, the real political discussion is how do we break up the Home Office? How do we actually think about having a separate immigration service, uh, a Home Office that's dealing with crime and disorder? How, How do we break up the component parts of this? Because what
1: we've got is Orwellian and Dickensian in its response to people. I think what you said there about, obviously, it's not just the Windrush generation is really interesting. I, what, what you both kind of think about, how important is it to the shared cultural history of this country to better understand stories uh, like the Windrush generation?
2: I think it's very important. I This weekend I went to visit one of my friends and she works in a people referral unit, mainly with young black boys who are between 12 and 14 And she does lots of work with them, and a lot of it is is about rebuilding their confidence and helping them to see their places in society. And actually, when we have these discussions more broadly about where they see themselves and where they see themselves in the world, they don't see themselves in society. We have these narratives around, I know there's been this whole thing about Winston Churchill, how great was he? Was he great? Was he he racist? Yes, was no. But actually, we have a very two-dimensional view of our history, which, firstly doesn't accept or appreciate the contribution of different communities to our shared cultural heritage. I very strongly sure think that. And secondly, actually I think enables the far right in this country to sort of act like they're harking back to some golden age where Winston Churchill was the best person ever or Queen Victoria had her dip up a lip and everything was fantastic. And we're doing not only our migrant community is a huge disservice, but also everyone else too, because we don't understand that.
0: I think it's worse than that. I think that, you know, Great Britain is the only country in the world that's got this great before it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The United Kingdom, how united does this country really feel at this point in time? We know that great nations can fall if they build up so much sort of myth that it sort of is a long way from truth. One of the things that's come about this Black History Month is the Labour Party saying, look, Jeremy Corbyn and Dawn Butler particularly, we're going to put slavery and colonialism into the curriculum. I actually think it's broader than that. We tend to focus on Hitler and winning the Second World War—that's the story we tell of ourselves. And even then, it's beating Hitler, not really beating fascism. And what does that fascism mean, given that it seems to be on the rise again in the world? We tend to focus on the Henry the Eighth and the Henrys, but not much in between. There's another story. It's a story about how Britain became that imperial empire power that had those pink bits of the map. And that is both a good and a bad story. And we have to be prepared to be honest about it. So in relation to black communities, please not let's not just obsess about the fact that Britain abolished slavery. Mm. Let's talk about the several hundred years in which Britain enriched itself from slavery. Let's understand if we're serious about negotiating a trade agreement with the Indians after we Brexit, then let's understand how they feel about partition and (laughs) what that meant for their country. Let's think about what the Mau Mau genocide in Kenya really means in the context of Why are there so straight lines? Who drew them across Mm. the continent of Africa? What's the problems in the Middle East at the heart of the problems in Israel? And what was our responsibility in relationship to that story? Why is it that we're having this, this discussion about borders and the hard border in Ireland? What is the story that began in around about 1922? These are not essential parts of our curriculum and it's quite disturbing actually that we say we want this place in the world but actually we're not prepared to tell that comprehensive story and i don't say that because i want people to feel bad i say that because actually if britain were only able to articulate those stories warts and all my god how tall it could stand because it can say we've learned from this history and we move forward as a consequence
1: yeah i i I mean, what you said there, especially about Ireland, I, I'm, there was a, the Tory MP Andrew Bridgen on a radio program just the other week, who seemed to be suggesting that English people were uh, eligible for Irish passports because of. I, I wasn't quite sure why he thought that, but that and certainly with the with the Windrush scandal, it seemed that there was a an there was a, a conversation not happening there about who has British citizenship and why. Um, and that is a kind of. It, does it does it really does it kind of go back to all of this history and like actually people don't understand who who British citizens course, are. because
0: what's very frustrating for me is this idea that West Indian people turned up here in 1948 as immigrants because they were looking for a better life and we needed to build Britain after the Second World. Well, no, no, this story is much deeper than that. These are that there were. Uh, Uh, black and brown people who were part of the empire who served in both the first and second world war and died for this country who've been airbrushed by the way out of things like dunkirk when you watch the film and more than that they came here because they were british subjects my ancestors were british subjects because they were taken from the continent of africa and found their way to guyana Some of them will have found their way from other islands in the Caribbean and they would have been sold on to Guyana. Um, I have a great grandmother who's from Calcutta because she was an indentured Indian worker. uh, And the country of Guyana has indentured Indian people who came after the end of slavery because the slaves were now free and someone had to work in the plantation. So Indians were brought over. This history is simply not understood in England, but it's vital to understanding it, if you were really to understand your place in the world.
1: On a, a slightly different but related topic, David, you, you spoke out about the racist abuse that you received um, after uh, being a prominent voice in the in the conversation about the Windrush scandal earlier this year. I was wondering, do you think that social media has made racism more publicly prevalent?
0: For sure. Yeah. I, you know, I've now been um a politician for almost two decades there have always been people who would write you in green ink and be really quite nasty and quite racist but that has grown and alongside it people say the most horrendous things on social media particularly twitter and facebook about you and direct it at your family they say they're going to kill you they say they're going to hang you they they all sorts of awful things but usually one has to share with the police And it's definitely the case that we are living in a world that feels very binary, in which the frame of identity politics is all around us. Now, identity politics is something we tend to associate with the left, um, i.e. it's a critique that says the left is more concerned about issues of gender, women, um, um, uh, trans, race than anything else. Um, I don't want to get into that today, but it is also correct if that is the case that there are other groups on the populist right that also say, hang on, what about my identity? I'm, yeah. a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a white working class man and David Lammy's got nothing to say to me. In fact, he opposes my interests. And, and it seems that social media amplifies some of that. Now that's, I'm generalizing here, but you see these wars fought out every single day on social media and it's it's problematic and actually in a democratic civilized society how we have dialogue how we make compromise how we debate without lurching to the lowest common denominator is a key component of navigating our shared our shared destiny and that's becoming harder and harder
2: i would agree with that to a certain extent but i think people in general tend to focus now maybe a little bit too much on racism on social media and they seem to ignore the kind of dog whistle racism we see a lot in the old media so things are we we have columnists in the times and the spectator who say things that are really unacceptable and the thing is is that it's easy to call out racism on twitter and facebook because people tend to be very direct they're calling people horrible names and they're very aggressively racist Mm -hmm. but actually what enables that or makes people feel comfortable with saying that sort of thing um on twitter and on facebook is the general cultural environment that we have the fact there are newspaper economists writing things that that they are the fact that our home secretary talks about pedophiles he doesn't talk about pedophiles he talks about we're stopping these asian pedophiles that Whole culture is enabling these people, and we don't think about that
1: enough. Uh, I think we need to take a quick break there, but uh, after the break, we'll be talking more about Donald Trump and, of course, Sajid Javid as well.
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: So Hannah, you were just making the point about high-profile political commentators in this country who changed the way we talk about racism and race. But it also feels like there's someone even more high-profile than that who possibly has made a big effect on this kind of conversation, um, that being US President Donald Trump. David, you made a brilliant speech against Trump when he made his visit to the UK earlier this year. Do you feel that his presidency is emboldening racists in this country as well as in America. Absolutely. And I know that for a fact, because often
0: when I do get sort of white supremacists um, contacting me, emailing me, saying the most horrendous things they've emanated from the States, once the police embark on their investigations. Look, the point is this, that very sadly, um, there is a hard right movement that's really organized and well-financed. And it connects Steve Steve Banion with Nigel Farage, with um, the Le Pens, um, Salvini, uh, and very sadly with Donald Trump and with mainstream politicians in this country like Boris Johnson. Um, and it's a very clever politics that seeks to wind up in a populist way parts of the electorate, particularly white working class electorates that are economically depressed as a result in this country of austerity um, and to some extent aspects of a neoliberal um, economics that's left them out of the mix um, and um, sees as their opponents people like myself in an age where race and identity and big existential questions about who am I, where do I belong, and how do I get a share of this country's growth or pie uh, are absolutely central. And Donald Trump um, presses all of these pop, pop buttons and sees himself as, frankly, as the chief of this movement and his language, his rhetoric, but also his actions in the United States are absolutely about forcing and pushing this agenda.
1: Hannah, I mean, in, in my cosy liberal bubble, I don't really know anyone who has any time for, for Donald Trump. But, but do, you, do you get the sense that there are people in this country who are kind of energised by him? And I mean, particularly in the way that he obviously talks about Muslims. And, and it, it, is there a kind of hard right, far right element in this country that, that is feeling kind of prouder and taller because of that?
2: I think to say people are energised by Trump in this country is probably a bit far, but I want to tap into what David said about the sort of nexus and the network of people of a transnational nature. I know we've discussed this with Hope Mm -hmm. Not Hate. Um, For example, how far-right groups in the US were supporting the whole Free Tommy Robinson campaign and they were creating that. And it's not even that... I, I think lots of people in this country do come from... Um, communities where particularly regional inequality is a huge issue people have very insecure jobs and the idea of an easy answer to those questions is very appealing for very obvious reasons um, and it's clear that these sort of transnational networks through Nigel Farage, Steve Bannon, Tommy Robinson are taking advantage of that sort of disenchantment with the status quo and I think actually we've been thinking about this a little bit more recently is that in our responses, we do talk about how to tackle, you know, race hate and race crime and uh, talked a lot about tell MAMO and other organisations who do hate crime reporting. But what we struggle to do at the moment, with I think the left in this country so fractured, is to address the wider causes of this kind of problem. So the economic insecurity that people feel because of the increase in automation, the fact that we're destroying our climate and that means future uncertainty and actually To solve this problem, yes, we do need to make micro-level actions, but we don't really think about the sort of macro fact that our world is really, really changing, and we need to solve that in order to stop the attraction of people to populists like Trump.
1: Um, To go back to the Windrush scandal, which we were talking about earlier, obviously that led to the resignation of Amber Roeder's Home Secretary. Um, David, I saw that you also recently criticised her successor, Sajid Javid, Uh, for pandering to the right wing of the Tory party over stop and search. Um, What do you see as being his argument for expanding stop and search, which apparently is their policy now? He hasn't got one because
0: his own home office have published various papers which demonstrate that stop and search does not work. What works is an intelligence-led approach. um, And what works, frankly, if you want to reduce knife crime are neighbourhood policing and more police, particularly present on our estates, are um, resourcing youth services again, supporting parents that are struggling um, and creating an environment in which young people don't feel scared so they pick up a knife. What works is sorting out the huge problem Britain's now got of organised crime and drugs entering this country because we've cut our border force or because we've not had a response to the general view amongst most policymakers that the war on drugs has not worked, and it's not clear what you replace it with. Um, Those are the big questions that are going to drive down knife crime. Stop and search is but one instrument, and it's an instrument, if it's used badly, that alienates community because you alienate the kids that aren't ferrying drugs, aren't carrying knives, are not with you if they're stopped 20 times that year. They turn against you they become hostile to the police. Um, And actually what it also does is it runs the risk of of criminalising young people who are Muslim or who are black, um, say because they're carrying a little bit of marijuana. Now, why is that a problem? It's because a white middle-class youth sitting on a university campus as we speak, smoking dope, is not going to get arrested, is not going to get a criminal record. But a black or brown youth who does is probably going to cost the taxpayer a hell of a lot of money because they're not going to be able to get a job and because you could potentially push them towards much, much more dangerous and worrying crime. So the fact that he's trotting this out is largely to do with the fact that he hopes after Theresa May has messed up Brexit that he might inherit the crown. And it's why also, as was referred earlier, he's talking, he's pandering to the narrative at the moment around... Muslim grooming and gangs and white women, all of that stuff is to ramp up the right within his own party.
1: Finally, uh, I know you're a major proponent of a people's vote. Me and Hannah were out in the, the Labour block on the march just the other week. Um, but there is a big argument on the left uh, among those who are sceptical of, um, of a people's vote that it could help embolden the far right in this country. And I'm interested in what you both think about that as an argument. And And if it's true, how we should go about trying to tackle that.
0: I want to be really
1: bullish. Grow up. Grow
0: up. Do you really believe that had Nigel Farage lost the referendum, he would have given up? Why the hell should I? It is absolutely clear that the Brexit we are getting is not some Lexit dream. It is a Brexit in which there is going to be less money to share in this country and which the poorest will suffer the most and in which lies were told and there may well have been external um, tinkering in the very referendum that we're talking about. So of course, if it is the case, as Mark Carney says, that house prices might fall by up to 35% if we get a no-deal Brexit, or certainly that the recession we experience will be deeper than the one we experienced in two thousand and eight. There is a duty to say, look, you've got to put this back to the people. Yes, we had a referendum, but you cannot undermine more democracy with more de- with democracy <laughs> with more democracy. Um, and in fact, when we get the deal, the shadow boxing has ended. This is what we've got, and I think we ought to seek the consent of the people as
1: to is this what you really want. And if it is, then we move forward. And my kind of feeling on this, I guess, is that at the moment it already feels like there is going to be a democratic deficit in in Brexit, and and the the Tory party, and especially Theresa May, has no mandate for any specific type of Brexit, either from the people or within Parliament. So it feels like the people who voted Leave will feel betrayed by whatever the outcome is going to be in a few months' time, um, and that. Equally, you could say, would embolden the far right.
2: I mean, yeah, I think if we talk about May, she's got no mandate for anything at the moment, does she? But I want to return to this point about the far right and about actually, without risk of sounding con- too controversial, um, people saying that this will embolden the far right as sort of a Lexit argument for Brexit. It's, as we've discussed, the rise of the far right is a complex problem that has been created by multiple factors none of which Brexit will solve. And we all know that that's the case. And what I find really frustrating, actually about the People's Vote campaign and about the sort of referendum campaign, is they've really struggled, and we saw it on the march, and it's really frustrating, I think a lot about how to change this, really struggled to engage with minority voters, or people from ethnic minorities, who should be on these marches and should be able to say why their livelihoods are in danger because of Brexit. And actually what we see a lot is that the people who say most that, you know, the Lexit argument's good, the left wing should embrace Brexit, this is great for us, are actually a lot of the time middle-class white people who don't have to think about their security after Brexit. They, they don't have to worry about what living in an, in an environment with an increased amount of far-right I- ideology means. They don't have to cope with hate crime on a regular basis. And actually that's a really frustrating thing is that they don't seem to be considering what Brexit really means for everyone and instead using it to pursue their own agenda.
1: I think we, we have to uh, stop there. We've run out of time. But um, David Lammy, thank you so much thank for you. joining us today. Every week we ask a political pub quiz question that is then answered on Friday's Extra Show. This week it's about Home Secretary Sajid Javid, who once romantically read a scene from his favourite book to his wife. But what is that book? I'll let you know on Friday but in the meantime if you think you know the answer do send us an email to office at progressonline.org.uk and if you get it right you could win a progress mug. We'll be back with a new show on Friday looking at this week's budget and we may even have a special edition episode on Wednesday. So look out for that subscribe now on iTunes, Spotify or Acast to make sure that you don't miss out and please do leave a comment or review on iTunes too. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast.
0: (laughs)